0: Uh, There was a man sat in my study and uh, he was sobbing. And the odd word escaped his mouth, uh, but his whole face told the real story through his unstoppable waterfall of tears. There were hot tears of anger at being caught, and there were cold tears of fear. Might he go to prison? Might he lose his family? There were bitter tears of wounded pride. He'd been someone. And in amongst those hot and cold and bitter tears, also it seemed to me the first sorry tears, tears of sorrow for what he'd done to someone. Now, we couldn't have caught and labeled individual tears as they poured down his face. We couldn't have said, oh, this one's humiliation, and that one's anger, and this one's fear, and and, and that one's definitely self-pity. Tears are tears are tears, but they tell a deeper story. Who knows? Maybe there were even some crocodile tears thrown in for the vicar going to come back to tears, but I want to start by looking at what is new and distinct in Lamentations 5, because actually there's quite a lot. Uh, We keep the same 22 verse structure that we've had all along, uh, but the poet now ditches Uh, The A to Z of grief, as we've had it each week, where he's used uh, or she's used succeeding letters of the Hebrew alphabet in a sense to explain and to give the sense of this is a complete picture of what is going on. That's gone. And so chapter 5 is more free-flowing and uh, it's less formal. All 22 verses of chapter 5 are prayer. They are addressed directly to God. God. If you remember back to chapter one uh, six weeks ago, you'll remember that that essence was was largely descriptive, and since we were we were being told about the suffering of Jerusalem or Jerusalem herself was speaking about that, but not necessarily to God. Whereas now this is prayer. But the big change, and it was so brilliantly picked up in our reading, is that it, up until now it's been almost entirely I I I. And then suddenly, it's we. That's the big change. If you go back to uh, chapter 3, verse 55, you have a classic individual lament. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. But in chapter 5, it's no longer an individual. It's now the community. And the community are praying together. And Jewish people still use these prayers in chapter 5 to mourn not only the destruction of Jerusalem, but the countless other pogroms and murderous, murderous regimes who have been bent on their annihilation over the centuries. So we, we have the continuing story of their present suffering, but it is now in a prayer. It's, all of this is taken to God and expressed Directly to God, rather than being described. And if you have your Bibles open, we have four powerful, perplexing uh, final verses uh, that were read in unison by our readers at the end. Uh, firstly, in verse nineteen, "You Lord reign forever; your throne endures from generation to generation." Uh, this is, in, in a sense, this is the direct affront. Against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, he had a throne, but the people are reminding themselves and are praising God that God is sat on the throne, that he reigns, that he is sovereign. Then in verse 20, we're back to the lament. They're still asking God, why do you always forget us? But then a new theme arrives in verse 21. Where we hear, restore us to yourselves, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. At the appeal in chapter one and in the early parts of Lamentations was essentially, uh, Hey God, you know, we're over here. And, and and it kind of seems like you've forgotten us or you've abandoned us. And come, please, and look. Come and see what you have done come and see what they have done now the appeal is restore us O God this final appeal is not against Jerusalem's enemies it's not for the rebuilding of the city it's not even for an end to their present suffering rather it's a plea to know God's presence to be restored to him by him and for him And then most perplexing of all, we have verse 22, the very last verse of uh, Lamentations. Uh, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, they say in verse 21, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. I I think we were all longing for a happy ending to Lamentations. But how does Lamentations end? It ends with a return to self-loathing and to doubt. Maybe none of this is true. Maybe God does hate us. Maybe God has abandoned us. I want to briefly think with you about how Lamentations 5, in particular, also the whole book, how it helps us since we need to stand back at the end of this time together. Firstly, it helps us lament... And it helps us to lament together. That's the most important thing that happens in this book. Individual voice becomes a communal voice. We should not stay isolated and alone in our grief. But of course, that's what grief does. Grief does isolate us, does make us feel alone. Paul says in the New Testament, carry one another's burdens we can't take on all of each other's burdens, but we can take on some. And part of the journey of grief is for our individual stories to become entwined. And for us to strengthen and refine each other as we tell God together our sorrows. And we tell God together of the ways that we long for him to act in our world. Of course, we live in a culture where we are prone to focus too much on ourselves as individuals and to shut out the suffering of others and to refuse to share our grief, our pain with others. But what Lamentations helps us to do is to say, this is something that the community does together. We are more than simply solo, solitary, praying individuals. Second thing that we see as we stand back is uh, a further exploration of sin and suffering. One of the complexities of all five of the poems in Lamentations is where does the blame and responsibility for the destruction of Jerusalem lie? Who did it? Is it God's punishment Is it innocent suffering? Is it a painful lesson in politics for Jerusalem, teaching them to watch who they make deals with? It seems to me that there are at least three kinds of sin going on in Lamentations. And and separating them out or teasing them out one from another so that we can see the precise cause and effect of each is, is all but impossible. We have, first of all, sins of the past. If you have a Bible, it's, uh, I'm looking at verse 7 of chapter 5, where the poet says, Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. We know that this is true. We know that we reap the rewards and their costly consequences of the imperfect people who went before us. You see it in families and the way that sin and dysfunction and brokenness is passed down the family tree. You see it in communities. You see it in countries and more globally. The sins of the past, much as we would like to separate ourselves from them, exist and have impact in the present Secondly, though, we have sins of the present and near past. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 5, the poet says, The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The people of Jerusalem know that in their lifetime, they have ignored the warnings of the prophets, they've rebelled against God, they have caused division and injustice and suffering in their community because of the way they have been. So they are aware that not only have the sins of the further past, in a sense, lingered into the present, but they themselves have been caught up in that. They are part of that they are continuing that but you've got another kind of sins of the present and that is the terrifying excesses of the invading Babylonian armies if we go back to chapter 1 verse 22 uh, the poet says uh, talking about the Babylonians let all their wickedness come before you deal with them as you have dealt with us all of this suffering that we hear described so passionately, with such rawness in Lamentations, all of this suffering has been caused by sin. But as we know only too well, sin, like tears, doesn't come in discreet, carefully packaged portions. My sin, your sin, historic sin, they all band together to create one ugly soup of suffering. These leftovers of Jerusalem are descendants of generations of Israelites who have rebelled against God. This leaves a mark on their culture and their values and their attitudes. And of course, it's exactly the same for us. Of course, we can be thankful for the amazing legacy that we have received, both from our country and from people that have gone before us and our families and in this church, but we know that their sin and their failings continue to leave a mark on our culture and values. These leftovers of Jerusalem are themselves at fault. They have rebelled. They have ignored Jeremiah's warnings. And of course, we're the same. We continue these patterns. We are marred by them, and yet we live them out. And the top dogs, the Babylonians, the swaggering superpower of the day, they have overstretched their hands. They have brought down an entirely disproportionate and cataclysmic amount of suffering on Jerusalem. Chastise Jerusalem, says God. Thank you says Babylon. We will grind their bones to dust. Now this is a helpful insight that Jesus later amplifies. We are all sinners and we are all sinned against and it is a fool's game to precisely link present suffering with past sin. Now there can be broad connections And there are questions that it is always worth exploring any time we are suffering. For instance, I've broken my finger. I haven't, but I've broken my finger. How did you break your finger? I punched my brother. Okay? Present suffering is linked to past sin, however much he was asking for it. But it's... That's rarely the case, isn't it, with sin and suffering. To see someone suffering greatly or to suffer greatly ourselves doesn't mean that we conclude that it is the direct and personal consequences of their or our own failings. Nor does it stop us asking for God's forgiveness for the things that we know that we've done wrong. But we do it not to escape suffering, but we do it because our heart says... We want to be restored to God. We want to put things right with him. A but a more Christian way of putting it is we want God to put things right between us and him. Let's thirdly uh, reflect on the nature of lament. Lamentations, five chapters, actually carefully put together, is teaching us that lament is never casual. It's never simply saying the first thing that comes into our heads when we are hurting. What we have in Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament is raw, definitely, but it's organized. And it's been considered, and it's been structured, and it's been refined. Four chapters of giving us this A to Z of grief. Lament is not supposed to be entirely rational or theologically watertight. In fact, that is highly unlikely and becomes increasingly unlikely when we are hurting deeply. But the ending of Lamentations 5 is very telling. Its end point is the desire for restoration with God. We've moved from chapter 1, where we essentially where we hear somebody mourning the situation post-destruction of Jerusalem, To now, chapter 5, where someone is praying fervently, telling God about their suffering, and they're seeking restoration with him above all other things. There are so many things and people and preoccupations and aspirations that block God out of our lives. But wherever you are, on your journey of suffering, being able after all the confessing and all the crying and all the lamenting to say wholeheartedly, restore us to yourself. That's the place where we're aiming for. Now you might not have got there yet, but Lamentations really helps because it puts this sign in the ground and it says that's where we're trying to get to. It's collective. We're part of a community we're not doing it on our own but the place we want to get to is that the first priority of prayer is restore us to yourself now we clearly need to finish by addressing the seeming absence of god from the whole of lamentations what is going on although it's not really an absence as so much of in so much of lamentations god is fully in view but god doesn't appear like he does, say, in the book of Job. God doesn't also appear in Lamentations to be active or a gracious, healing presence. And God absolutely does not lead uh, the poet and the community of Lamentations through to a nice, happy, clean ending. But from an Old Testament point of view, Lamentations is not the last word on the destruction of Jerusalem. It's an important word. These words are themselves God's gift to us. They are a template for our tears because you can't hurry grief. And from an Old Testament point of view, we have uh, Isaiah, particularly the chapters 40 through to 55 of Isaiah. They are prophetic words of comfort and hope and healing. And Isaiah 40 to 55 are spoken to the same group of people, those who survived the destruction of Jerusalem, they're spoken to the same group by the same God, but by a different prophet. And if you could encapsulate the teaching of Isaiah 40 to 55, it is God saying to his scattered people, you have suffered greatly, and I will bring you home. I will restore it's there from a new testament point of view jesus chose some of the key passages in isaiah 40 to 55 particularly obviously the end of chapter 52 and chapter 53 to explain both the necessity of his suffering that was always god's plan that was always what the suffering servant would do that was always what the Messiah would achieve, but also its redemptive value, so both the necessity and the redemptive value of his suffering. There will be times, we suspect, for all of us, when we are tempted to believe, as we hear so forcefully pronounced in Lamentations, that God has completely forgotten or abandoned rejected us and they're all awful whether it's forgotten abandoned or rejected they're all terrible and they all feel us leave us feeling like we are in the pit but we know now in a way that they could not know then that this is not true we might feel it at times but deep down We now know it's not true. Why? Because Jesus, God's son, chose to suffer humiliation, betrayal, the worst excesses of an invading army to prove beyond all doubts that God longs to do what? To restore us to himself, to redeem our suffering, and then, and this is really important, to transform us, Into a movement of grace that captures and counts the tears of the suffering and the abandoned. Our loving God, who hates sin and greed and injustice, hates their devastating consequences, hates that we become broken and ruined people. But what does He do? He wades in to our story of tears. Jesus knows what it is to weep tears of exhaustion and sorrow and humiliation. He is our man of sorrows. Jesus knows what it is to cry out to our Father in despair, appalled at human cruelty and inhumanity. Jesus is our brother in arms. Jesus knows what it is to entrust his life into God's hands in the face of those who want him dead. He is our pioneer. Jesus is our trailblazer. Christian lament then. What is it? What is it as we look at the Bible? And what is it as we, in a sense, seek uh, to, to take up or pick up Things from this series and carry it into our worshiping life, both corporately here and in the smaller groups. What is Christian lament? Christian lament becomes a spirit inspired bringing to God of our hurts and our griefs and our concerns, imploring God to act, to do something. And equally importantly, Christian lament is bringing the hurts and the griefs and the concerns of our world to God, imploring Him to act, to do something. Let's pray together. I invite you, first of all, to consider two things. They're both about tears. And so, of course, they are deeply personal just for us to consider in our own hearts. And the first one is just for you to consider your own tears. What are the things or the relationships or the challenges that make you weep? The things that you can even at this moment, feel welling up. Uh, the, the challenge is too big. The, the pain is too great. What are your tears? Let's quietly consider that. And secondly, let's consider the tears of our world. Those who today cry out because... Their greatest fear is that God has abandoned or rejected or forgotten them. Those whose suffering are so deep uh, compared to our own comfortable lives that we, we can scarcely uh, tolerate how painful it would be to be in their shoes. So I'm inviting you to consider two things, your tears, your own, they're just yours, and the tears of our world. And let's let's hold those in this space as we pray together. Listening, God, here are our tears. And here are their tears. See them. You do see them. You are God over all. Remember Jesus. Restore us to yourself. Restore them, we pray. And keep us true. As we wait for heaven, that place of peace, where tears of all kinds are no more. Amen.